I'd like to also welcome you this morning. My name is Steve, and I've been serving here as the lead pastor for about eight years, and it is a joy to gather this morning to celebrate what we celebrate every Sunday. That's why Christians gather on Sunday. That's why they pushed against standard Judaism and started gathering on a totally different day that is not the Sabbath, Saturday. And it is because of Jesus Christ's resurrection. When I was 15 years old, I was trying to find out how I could never enter the church again in my life. I was done with whatever the institutional church was. I was done with all the hypocrisy. And frankly, at the core of my heart, I just didn't believe and I didn't want to believe. And then there was another time a few years later, I had a Jackson soloist custom guitar around my neck playing in an 80s heavy metal band. And we would take breaks during our practice down in South Florida, and we would come back with our 7-Eleven super big gulps and our bag of chips, and we would talk about God and about eternity and about what happens after we die. I wasn't in a church at that point anymore, didn't desire to be in a church, and there I am with my drummer and other guitarist and lead vocalist, and we are being theologians, if you would. Theology simply means the study of God. We were trying in our best to understand why we still had this capacity for eternity in our heart, even though we weren't being preached at or hounded at by religious people. When I was 21 years old, and I was certainly not seeking God, I was thankful I had just turned 21 so I could legally go into nightclubs and drink and do what I thought was going to give me satisfaction. And it was only about a month and a half after I had turned 21 years old, that my mother and father, who are here this morning, uh, were making sure that this young metalhead got back to church at least to hear something of truth. And I fell asleep during the sermon, as some of you may this morning. Uh, and I woke up at the last couple minutes before noon, and the preacher simply told me of God's love that Jesus died to pay for the, all the penalty of my sin, and it was a gift. And I had heard that before. I mean, I had heard that ever since I was little and was able to comprehend. But that morning, it went from my head down to my heart, and I was overwhelmed by God's goodness and grace and mercy to me. And I was born again that morning, 21 years old. Ever since that morning, I have gathered, for the most part, every single Sunday because I believe... A dead man walked out of a sealed and guarded tomb, never to die again. And I believe the claims that he made, that he was the Son of God, that he could forgive sin, and he could grant eternal life. And I believe that because he, he placed those claims upon the most unreasonable and ludicrous event in all of human history. His own bodily resurrection from the dead three days after he died by the exact method he said he would die from. You know, there is no one else in history who has been able to do that. There have been some who have claimed they would rise from the dead, but they didn't. It's easy to claim that. It's easy to claim something and it never to happen. Why do I believe this? There are at least 90 explicit references foretelling. We call that prophecy, meaning it's going to happen this way before it happens, and then it happens 
just like the writers of Scripture or Jesus said it would happen. Ninety explicit references foretelling Jesus' resurrection from the dead. That doesn't even include the hundreds of other prophecies that have been fulfilled in detail, every one of them. On seven separate occasions, Jesus foretold His own resurrection. On five of those seven occasions, Jesus specified not only the fact that He would rise from the dead, but also the precise timing. Three days after. You know, there is only one man in human history who was foretold when he would die, the specific details surrounding his death, leading up to his death, the method used to kill him, and the exact day on which he would rise from the dead. Only one man in human history. And I believe every person needs to grapple with those truth claims because they are then validated by a bodily resurrection proven by an empty tomb, but not totally empty. There was the linen cloth wrapped as though a body had passed right through it, not unwrapped. An empty tomb, not totally empty, and hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses. Here's what he claimed. He claimed that he was the Son of God. He claimed that he could forgive sin. And don't we need that promise? Don't we need a deliverer, rescuer to step into human history and say, I know you're bad. Matter of fact, I know exactly how bad I know. I actually know that you're worse off than you sometimes even think you are. And that he can forgive that. He also said he could provide something. He said he could provide life eternal. But why does it even matter that we believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Why do we gather today or any Sunday? Because Jesus never told us to worship a relic or a building or even a specific day. Today, we rejoice like any other Sunday that Christ is risen. Because the majority of the world will tell you it doesn't matter whether you believe or not. That's what they will tell you. It doesn't matter. But I'm going to tell you why it matters. It matters because eternal life or eternal death hang in the balances. Death here, friends, is the end of no one. It's not a period. It's a comma. And it matters what Jesus says because either He was insane by making these claims or He was telling you the truth so that you could be saved and rescued. We're going to quickly do a survey of seven signs in John's Gospel this morning. And towards the end of John's account of the Gospel, there are four Gospels. You're familiar with those. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John records certain signs Things that are supposed to lead you somewhere. And he says this towards the end of his account in the Gospel of John. He says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. That means there's a, there's a lot more miracles than John records. But listen to what he says. But these, these signs, these particular miracles are recorded, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And listen to this. This is the hope. And that by believing, you may have life in His name. Outside of Christ, death. In Christ, life. There are seven signs. We're going to hit these quickly. What does a sign do? 
What is the purpose of a sign? Sign provides directions. It communicates and conveys information designed to assist the receiver with decision-making based on information provided. For example, if you see a sign that says San Diego, 153 miles away, you have a decision to make if you left Denver hoping to travel to the key west of Florida. Right? Okay, you just get your bearings. San Diego, we've been driving now for a while, and San Diego... No, we want to go to Key West. So what does that demand of you if you're going to get to the right destination? Offering some explanation to your family, <laughs> turning, turning the car around and traveling at some expense, but still getting to the right destination. If you see a sign that says Disney next three exits, right? And older dads are like, oh, not Disney again. Okay. Disney next three exits, but you were hoping to take the family this summer to the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. You have a decision to make. And, and now the pressure is going to be mounted upon you because the kids are going to want to go where typically. Not your children. Right. They're going to want to go into Disney. And no, no, the plan all along was to go to Smithsonian. So now you've got to make a decision based upon the sign, the information conveyed. Do you know that's what John's signs do? They give you information as you as the receiver have to process that information and make a decision. Sign one. In John chapter two, Jesus attends a wedding where he turns water into wine. Something John calls in, in John chapter two, verse 11, the first of his miraculous signs. And it says this, he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Let me ask you. Would that miracle alone be enough for you to believe in Jesus as the Son of God? Water to wine. Six stone water jars used for Jewish rites of purification, loaded with symbolism, that somehow Jesus' transformation of this liquid is for a purification that is beyond the imagination of most people, each able to hold 20 or 30 gallons, and Jesus has the servants fill them up. Not priests. Not the religious elites. He has the servants fill up the water jars. They go to offer the wine, and it is the best quality wine at the banquet. And there's a lot more going on here than Jesus endorsing weddings or Jesus endorsing the drinking of a beverage. What's going on here is Jesus' power to transform something. Here is why the disciples believed. They saw Jesus had the power without any illusion, without any special mechanics to change water into wine. What does this sign point to? Right? If that's the sign, where is it pointing us? In the next chapter, John chapter 3, maybe one of the most familiar passages in John, where we hear this verse, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. But in that chapter, Jesus is not primarily interested in the transformation of beverages. He is very interested in the transformation of hearts, the mind, the will, and the emotion, who we are at our, at our innermost being. He says that He is God's one and only Son. He explains to a religious, educated, powerful, honorable man named Nicodemus that Nicodemus, even though you're a Jewish religious leader, maybe even moral, 
You cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. He tells him that two different times. How is that even possible? Matter of fact, Nicodemus, who understood the scriptures that he had in his day, asked, how is that even possible? And here's what Jesus says. The spirit of God must transform not liquid into another kind of liquid, but must transform a spiritually dead heart into a spiritually living heart. This is what Ezekiel in the Old Testament prophesied. Here's one of those prophecies. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. John wrote this in John chapter 3, verse 6, that Jesus said this, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. So here's what Jesus is offering. This is the sign. He offers to you a transformation of the heart, not unlike water to wine, but better. A new heart that you can only call it new birth. And it's something that only the Son of God through His cross work can affect in you. Sign two. When we get to chapter four, Jesus is speaking with a woman at the well. She came at an odd time of day. It seems as though she's avoiding the other women. She's avoiding the shame that a community can bring upon someone for a life marked by sin. He says this to her. That if she really knew who he was, she would have asked him for living water, right? There's a well. She's the only one that has something to draw from. He interacts with her. He begins a dialogue. And he says, if you knew who I really was, you would have asked me for living water. Here's what Jesus crosses to make this truth. He crosses geographical boundaries. Most Jews would not have gone through Samaria. Cultural boundaries, religious boundaries, moral boundaries, and gender boundaries. And he sits there with this woman with a historic shipwreck of a life. The question is this. Listen to the question. Because as you move quickly through these signs and through this narrative, here's the question. Is this new life, this new birth, this transformation only for Jewish men with respectable status? Or is this new life, this transformation, this new birth also available to anyone? And by anyone, we mean the woman at the well who's had five husbands and the man she's living with now is not her husband. Later in the same chapter, an official asks Jesus to heal his son. And even though they are far away from the boy, John 4, verse 50 states, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And what happened is when he finally got home, he found the boy was healed. And guess when he was healed? At the exact, at the precise time, Jesus said that your boy will live. He says, your son will live. So here's the sign. And here's the lesson. Here's the lesson. The Samaritan woman illustrates the truth that we may ask Jesus for living water and it will be given. Even if we think we are scarred and overwhelmed by a life of sin and think we are outcasts socially. All you have to do is ask. The official illustrates the truth that you may ask Jesus for spiritual healing and it will be granted even though Jesus is not physically present with you right now. Here's the third sign. The third sign is found in John chapter 5. It's a Sabbath healing, which is very big to the Jewish religious elites. And it's at a pool called Bethesda. 
And it's at this miracle that Jesus claims the same authority as God the Father, which if you know anything about Judaism, you do not do without risk of being stoned. Let me read to you a portion of this narrative in John chapter 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. That's a long time. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, listen to the question, because the characters in John are not isolated. They're kind of types. Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. So he's believing sort of this, this superstition, if you would, that when the water is stirred, the first person in gets to be healed. We have our own kind of superstitions, even under the banner of Christianity that happen with the signs and wonders movement. All Jesus says is, do you want to be healed? Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Notice what Jesus, Jesus doesn't even incorporate the pool of Bethesda. He simply says this. Jesus looks at him and says, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. The man who was healed heard the voice of Jesus say, get up and walk. Jesus says this right after that miracle, this sign. And he says this, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. This is what the sign is pointing you to life in Jesus. You're traveling this way towards death, towards eternal death. And a sign says life this way. That's what John is doing. Billboard after billboard after flashing sign, life in Christ, transformation. And you have a decision to make based upon the information conveyed to you. Jesus' death and resurrection ask a similar question of you. Do you want to be healed? Sign four. Really, there's two signs right next to each other. The feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus walking on the water. And amidst these, you have what we call the bread of life discourse. Or you're maybe more familiar with the term sermon or teaching. Jesus has this incredible teaching packed right next to two miracles. The feeding of 5,000 men and the walking on water. Now, these two signs answer a new question. Here's the question. How is this transformation? How is this new life? How is this new birth and miraculous healing to be given Listen to, and by the way, I'm going to read you a verse that the disciples had a very difficult time accepting as well. Jesus says this. This is so the question is how Jesus says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And no surprise, folks, I mean, if you're feeling like that tension in your own heart, um, most of those who were following Jesus up through this point turned around and left. The statement was difficult to hear But what Jesus is communicating is the necessary cost of transformation. The necessary death that he needed to die in order to provide life to those who would believe. It is more than water to wine, more than a physical healing. Jesus must provide his own life. Because he is the bread of heaven. That's what he says. That's what bread does. Bread gives you sustenance. You eat it to stay alive. And he's going to give himself. And by the way, in case you think this is such this is really good news, but I don't think I I don't think I qualify. 
I've done some very heinous and evil things in my life. I don't think I qualify. Here's the point of the feeding of the 5,000. You must eat. And when everybody is fed, listen to this, there's plenty left over. Do you remember the, the miracle? They gathered it up into baskets. It was a miracle. Do you know there is plenty here in Christ? There is plenty of grace and mercy in Christ for everyone. Eating and drinking press home this truth that the sacrifice of Jesus must be personalized. You take it and internalized. It's not something just intellectual or external. You don't just put on nice clothes or walk into a building or say certain slogans. Amen, brother. Amen. Hallelujah. No, it's internalized. It is that deep and personal that it's like a new birth. Salvation will only be imparted as Jesus' very body is given. Sign five, walking on water. Very quick one. He's walking on the water. The disciples, seasoned mariners, seasoned fishermen, are scared to death of this particular storm. And they see someone walking and they don't go, oh, good, it's Jesus. Now they're even more afraid because they think it's a ghost. Okay, So there's kind of humor if you're not in the boat and you're simply reading this. It's like, these are scared fishermen. That must be a bad storm. And now they see something terrifying walking on the water. And guess who it is? Jesus. This displays that Jesus can do things no man has ever done, ever, ever in history. But it also shows that he's fulfilling the role of God. He is feeding his people. He is protecting them in a storm. He is rescuing them from shipwreck and he is guiding them safely to the land. These are attributes of God's care for those whom he loves. When so when when Jesus in a few more chapters, when Jesus does give his body as a sacrifice for sin, it becomes very clear that he could have prevented it. Why? Well, he walks on water. He multiplies bread. He could have prevented this, but he didn't. Why? Go all the way back to John 316. Because God loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The sixth sign. Now the claim and the sign are reversed. In John 8, 12, Jesus says that he is the light of the world. This claim is validated then. So the teaching comes before the sign. He says, I am the light of the world. And then he validates that in chapter nine by healing a man that was born blind. So again, Jesus is doing something that's never been done before. Jesus explains in John chapter nine, verses four to five, he says this. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Here's the picture. It's really simple. It is the need for all of us to be set free from spiritual blindness. We think we can get to God. We think we know the path up around the mountain. We actually think there may be seven different paths around the mountain. And at the end of the day, we're all going to be on the top worshiping whatever we called him, that great being. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 14? He is the way, the Greek article singular. He is the truth. He is the life. And in case you missed it, he says this. No one gets to the Father except through him. No one passes the plate of Jesus' sacrifice, the eating of his body and the drinking of his blood, and gets to the Father it is a warning that Jesus is the only one who can heal this condition. Have you ever been in such a dark environment that even the smallest flicker of light you can see? You know that we are born into a moral darkness 
And when Jesus steps in, it is so clear and so bright that it's unmistakable. It's not like, oh, I really think that's a good path too, or that is a good path. You have no idea. It's so dark. But when you see that light flicker, you can walk towards it. It's said often when people are lost in the woods, they will walk towards about any single little source of light that they see. Jesus says, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Here's the seventh sign, the final sign. In John chapter 11, Jesus makes another claim. He says this, I am the resurrection and the life, and that whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now to say that you have the answer beyond death is pretty special. But to say that you are the answer beyond death is either arrogant or spectacular if you can prove it. John places Jesus' teaching and sign next to each other to highlight a very important point. John chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And in John chapter 11, he says, he is the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, Yet shall he live. Guess what follows in in, in John chapter 11? Just to validate this claim. One of his own friends dies. Jesus isn't in the village when he dies. He waits for four days to remove any kind of superstitious beliefs that the Jews had held. And he shows up after Lazarus has been dead for four days. His own sister says, Lord, by now his body will stink. The decaying process has already taken hold and death seems to have sealed a certain victory. But remember what he said. I am the resurrection and the life. If anyone believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. How do we know that? Lazarus, come forth. And guess who comes walking out of the tomb? Lazarus. And people are like, this is the Messiah. This is the kind of king we want. And they follow him because they have seen Lazarus and they want to see Jesus who did this amazing miracle. And there he is sitting again and eating with his loved ones. And so it's this little group that are amazed by this temporal resurrection because Lazarus had to die again because the wages of sin is death. But it's that group that then follows in procession Jesus as he enters Jerusalem, which we observed last Sunday. What does this close connection say, though? Here's what it says. If Jesus can raise Lazarus from the dead, then lays down his own life, what skepticism is that intended to remove? That somehow this was an accident or some conspiracy of fate or somehow in this moment Jesus was no longer the all-powerful king, the son of God? Here's what you're supposed to get from this. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He walks on the water. He can multiply bread. He can change water to wine. And he lays down his own life. Why? Jesus gives you this clarity. Listen to what he says in John chapter 10, verse 18. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. Listen to this phrase. And authority to take it up again. And guess what happened? Just as he foretold, 90 explicit references, seven by Jesus himself, five saying the timing that he would raise again. And it validated all these claims that he is making. So why should you believe in conclusion? Why should you believe? Not really because of the seven signs, believe it or not, even though we just took a lot of time on them. 
Because there were a lot of people that saw those signs and did not believe. Jesus foretold his own death. He foretold the circumstances surrounding his death, foretold his own bodily resurrection. And it happened just as he said it would. That's all the evidence you need. But the signs give added support and direction. They're pointing you to something. So after Jesus foretold his own death, he told the crowds this in John chapter 12, verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light. That's the decision. Remember, the signs convey information so that you can make a right decision. Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So my final question this morning, how do you believe? How do you believe? Here's why we should believe. These are written that you may believe. Those are the signs. Here's what you should believe, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He's the promised rescuer, deliverer. And he's the son of God, the one true son of God. And the results of believing that by believing you may have life in his name. That's what John 20, 30 and 31 say. In first John, here's the prologue. Here's where John was aiming all along. Jesus says this, or John writes, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, you you don't become this kind of child just because your parents are. Or of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So believing, if I'm going to say, how do you believe this morning? Believing involves receiving. These are intermixed ideas. But what exactly do we receive? Do we simply mimic a prayer after someone? Do we simply walk a particular direction? Do we simply raise a hand? There are people who have done that throughout history. And Jesus in Matthew says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name, done many wonderful works. And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. There's a certain kind of seed, Jesus says, that is planted in shallows and grows up quickly. But when the sun comes out, it dies. It had no root. They were not truly born again, even though they showed initial great excitement and growth. So what exactly do we receive? Jesus rebukes the religious leaders of his day and he says this, you do not have my word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom has sent me. We receive and believe his words. We believe what the scripture says about Jesus, that he is the Christ, the son of God. He's not just a good teacher. He is. He's not limited to that. He's not my buddy that wears flip-flops and understands all my hurts. And he does understand all your hurts. You have a high priest who has entered into all your struggles with you, yet without sin. It is to believe what the scriptures say about his person and his work. Secondly, believing does not simply mean believing Jesus. That I believe he's a historical character, or I believe he did a lot of good, or I believe his teachings are a great standard of morality. It's not just believing Jesus. That is, believing he's saying true things. Rather, the phrase we see over and over again in Scripture, listen to this, is to believe in Jesus. Listen to what he says in John 11. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. To believe then is to believe in him, to believe everything Scripture states about him and rest completely upon who he is and what he has done. 
His claims, the work on the cross. Listen to John chapter 3, verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Listen to the next phrase. Whoever believes in Him, not who believes Him, but believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That's believing in Him, that He is the Son of God. He's not just one of good paths, one of many good paths. Receiving, and this is the final point, means to accept, just like you would receive anything else. You receive a gift. You accept, you receive the words and work of Jesus as your only hope of salvation. It says in John chapter 1, Yet to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. It would be just like the woman at the well where Jesus said this. Listen to this. Because it's a gift. A gift is to be received. He says this to the woman at the well. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, listen to what He says. You would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. That's to receive. You ask and you receive. Would you do that this morning if you never have? Would you be impressed upon these signs to go from your life of sin and the idea is repent. Jesus in Mark chapter 1 verse 15 said, repent and believe. You turn because of these signs are pressing you from death to life. How do I do that? I believe in Him. I believe in His claims that He's the one true God, the Savior of the whole world. He is who He says He is. He can do what He has promised He can do and that is forgive sin. And it's a gift. You receive it as a gift. Listen to Romans 10.9, last verse. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, because that's a claim He made, and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, because that's the linchpin of Christianity now, the resurrection. If you do that, you confess Him as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, here's the promise. You will be saved. You will be gifted eternal life. Let's pray.